Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power. Um, first up was a uh, traditional Monday links I liked. Um, lots of good things, lots about the vaccine at the moment, vaccine justice, access to vaccine, the people's vaccine. The thing I most liked was actually Dolly Parton singing vaccine, 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 vaccine to the tune of Jolene, 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 Jolene. And she had, you know, she just wrapped it off in this amazing voice. And I wish she'd do a whole song about vaccines because I think it could really help get people to, to get over vaccine hesitancy, which seems to be one of the big things at the moment. Um, there was also a really interesting read for people of my generation, especially from Naomi Hussain. On the 50th anniversary of the concert for Bangladesh, so 50 years ago, George Harrison uh, agreed after being lobbied by his friend, the sitar player Ravi Shankar, to uh, organise a, a benefit for Bangladesh. It was one of the first ones that had ever been done like this with kind of global superstars singing for um, <clears throat> for the famine, for the famine that broke out after the war in Bangladesh, the War of Independence, where Bangladesh broke off from Pakistan, um, and my big brother had it, and it was this kind of strange orange album. I remember it with a picture of a starving child um, on the front, and uh, and and lots of vinyl inside, and so it was really amazing to read the story of that concert uh, in Naomi's blog. Quite a long read on Medium. Um, and it was almost, and at the time, even the name Bangladesh was new because it was East Pakistan before then. And George Harrison and, and his friends kind of sang Bangladesh into existence. And it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautifully written piece. Naomi writes really well, but also just it kind of very evocative of the period and 50 years ago. So um, Bangladesh has been there for 50 years now. Second post of the week was um, a really nice post by a cartoonist who, it turns out, can also write really well. Pat Burns is one of the uh, New Yorkers star cartoonists. Um, and he got in touch with me because he's now working with Pablo Suarez, who's a friend of mine who, who's doing a lot of work on humour and social change. And he wrote, he helped me organise the Corona cartoon competition last year, which is one of the um, most sort of most read posts uh, of the year and wrote a really good post on the role of humour uh, uh, to go with it. Um, this time, Pat Burns <coughs> was reflecting on the 80th anniversary of a historic cartoon and what it tells about social change. So the cartoon is, um, it's very hard to describe cartoons in words, but it's a uh, archetypal bureaucrat walking towards the camera. Behind him, two planes have crashed into the ground and everybody's rushing towards the planes. The bureaucrat is walking towards the camera and saying, oh, well, back to the old drawing board. Um, and this became a kind of, you know, very well-known New Yorker cartoon. But the interesting bit about Pat's blog is it gives it the context for this. So this was published in 1941 at a time when America was full of self-doubt and uh, there'd been some disasters with its aviation industry. Uh, the war was gathering steam, World War II. And Pat says, within two years, this newly coined phrase became a watchword of can-do optimism. And the country was shattering its boldest projections in manufacturing technology for its allies. So as he says, ideas have power especially when everyone gets to experience the power of having them. And that's where cartoons and humour come in, because everybody can laugh. You don't have to be have a PhD to laugh at a joke. So <clears throat> he makes a number of really good observations. I'll just read out a couple. So if we laugh at ourselves, we admit we have room for improvement and are open to change. It sets an example. 
But if that humour is something that others can relate to as well, then their hearts may likewise be open. That's the key to systemic change, hearts before minds, and hearts at mass scale. Anyone who believes that mountains of data and a scolding tone are what change minds hasn't been paying attention in the last few, well, ever. So that's fantastic critique of a, a sort of particular finger-wagging approach to trying to convince people to change their minds. Um, and then he compares... What, what was going on in the cartoon with what's going on now. Like 80 years ago, we were at another global existential crisis. How many different issues can you name that, would, that could take the place of the plane in the cartoon? Poverty, power, climate, development, how many more? If ever there was a time to get back to the old drawing board, it is now. Because what we are doing to change minds and hearts isn't working, at least it isn't working fast enough, given the choices we confront. So I thought, beautifully written piece. Some great cartoons to go with it. He is a great cartoonist. So I think that would be my pick of the week if people want to come on. I'd read just one. Third piece was a, uh, a repost of a piece by my colleague, Tom Kirk at LSE. Tom and I, we seem to be doing spending far too much time together. We teach um, together. We uh, do a lot of research together. And we're, we're going to be doing some work with the, with the UN together which I'll talk about in a few weeks. So this was a piece that Tom wrote about this idea of public authority, uh, which is something we've been working together. The idea that <clears throat> uh, public authority is a way of understanding power, especially in fragile and conflict-affected settings, or as he calls them, CAPS, conflict-affected places. And this particular piece is on how we apply ideas of public authority to NGOs and international NGOs. Um, so he introduces the idea of a public authorities lens. So a public authorities lens seeks to understand the full range of actors claiming power and governing people in the world's most conflict affected places, CAPS. It does this by exploring these actors' appeal to popular social norms, the provision of public goods and sometimes acts of coercion and violence. It includes actors considered part of the state and those seemingly far removed from or even standing in opposition to it such as street-level bureaucrats, customary leaders, civil society organisations, religious leaders, business associations and armed groups. So his argument in this piece is that international NGOs and, and, and national NGOs often work through and themselves constitute forms of public authority. So for example, service delivery, you know, if, a, if an NGO is doing mass water provision, education, healthcare, it becomes a form of public authority with a kind of power and legitimacy uh, and influence over the lives of people if they accept its position and its role. <clears throat> Second example is social norms. So public authorities, and this is, I'm quoting from Tom here, implicitly create insiders and outsiders and boundaries or rules that determine who or what are deemed worthy of support, protection or development. INGOs and NGOs are no exception. They routinely seek to explain or justify their difficult decisions over who gets what. The resulting appeals can be lofty when they involve principles found in international humanitarian law, human rights, religious doctrines or particular notions of morality, justice or progress. But they also often involve considerations of risk, their own capacities, future funding and the power and politics of the conflict affected places they wish to continue operating in. Both shape what these actors do and how they aim to govern others. And the, Tom's point is that they can be studied. You know, INGOs and NGOs have brands, they have public reports, announcements, an online presence, documents, loads of documents, evaluations, learning exercises. 
So a, so a researcher can try to understand how INGOs and NGOs see themselves and how others see them by looking at this documentation. And his conclusion is that INGOs and NGOs take on a chameleon-like quality as they present different faces to different audiences and tensions and contradictions arise. So, you know, the face they show to the local warlords is going to be different from the face they show to the local funders. And Ros Iben has written a lot about this kind of slightly schizophrenic world of the NGOs where you have to be different things to different people. And his final paragraph argues for not putting either NGOs or NGOs on a pedestal. They face the uncertainties and opportunities of fast-changing CAPs, conflict-affected places. This includes the energy and innovations of local leaders, organisations and states, and the competing, complementary and emerging social norms and laws that they promote. Yet part of the rationale for their presence is that authorities in CAPs are unable or unwilling to promote universal norms or provide public goods or enforce rules. And they need to help fill these gaps. So NGOs and NGOs can arguably only do this by themselves claiming public authority. How they choose to do so and who they do it with has real consequences for millions of people in some of the most dangerous, chaotic places on the planet. And these are truly subjects worthy of our research. So yeah, the overall point is in these really conflict-affected places, NGOs and international NGOs are particularly important players, so important that they actually become part of the language of power, part of the landscape of power, and therefore they should be open to research. And Tom and I have been doing some research, which I'll talk about in due course. Final post of the week was a, a kind of feel good, you know, finish the week on an up piece, a historic legal victory for climate justice in France. So I'm really interested in legal activism. I'm not a lawyer and I came to this late, but um, you know, my understanding is that legal activism can be really slow. You know, some court cases take decades, very expensive if you have to pay for lots of very flash, fancy lawyers. But when it wins, it wins big. Um, and often it wins when it combines all that sort of litigation, legal argument with mass campaigning. So the example here is four French NGOs who in 2018 took a case to the French courts um, about their government's performance on climate change. And this is a post written by Amel Leconte of um, Oxfam, France. So on February the 3rd, 2021, so a month ago in Paris, a landmark ruling found the French government at fault for failing to take enough action to tackle the climate crisis. The, the case was launched two years previously by four NGOs, including Oxfam, France. This decision should serve as a warning to other governments to keep in line with their public commitments and do more to tackle climate change. A second ruling is expected by the summer in which the courts could compel the French government to take further steps to reduce emissions. So this is massive. This is, this is take, using the courts to make governments keep their promises rather than just think they're just hot air and you can do whatever you like once you've made the, made the commitment. You don't have to fulfil it. The interesting thing about this is the scale of the mass action. There were 2.3 million people signed the petition when the action was launched, when the legal action was launched. And it's not just France. So I'll finish with the last um, yeah, couple of paragraphs from, uh, from Armel's piece. The case is part of a growing global movement. All over the world, citizens are taking legal action to force governments to act on climate change. The number of climate litigation cases has doubled since 2017. And as of July 2020, at least 1,550 climate change cases have been filed in 38 countries. In France, we were inspired by Urgenda, a similar case in the Netherlands, 
in which the court ordered the government to ramp up its emissions reduction target. And it's great timing because the ruling comes as many countries are preparing more ambitious targets to reduce emissions as required by the Paris Agreement. And they're all coming to Scotland in November 2021, COVID permitting, for the UN Climate Summit. These are known as Conferences of the Parties, COPs. So this is COP26, the 26th of these uh, in a row. And a recent UN report reveals that current national targets fall far short of the cuts needed to avoid catastrophic global warming. So legal action is not the, yeah, it's not going to solve everything, but it's a really useful arrow in the quiver. It's a really useful tool for activism. And I think the, the example in France really gives some food for thought in terms of how the law can be used to push these wide, massive and incredibly important agendas. And on that upbeat note, have a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.